Hey everyone, and welcome back to another episode of The Negotiation. In this episode, we speak with Kimberly Kirkendall, founder and president at International Resource Development. We recently had Kimberly on the show back in September of 2020 to discuss a myriad of topics, including the art of negotiation, building relationships, managing suppliers, as well as interpreting and navigating written procedures and policy documents. She sits down with us again almost 18 months later to speak on what's changed since that last conversation. We discuss what's happened to the global supply chain and how that's impacted China's economy. We look at how the business landscape has changed and whether we'll ever see anything like what we would have considered normal or are the changes here to stay. I asked Kimberly whether the B2B buying process has changed in China and how she sees it evolving post-COVID. We also ask her about the kind of advice she's offering up to her clients looking to enter China and whether China has slid more towards a U.S. approach to buying, meaning less relationship-driven and more lawyer lobby. Enjoy. So foreign companies, let's say 10 years ago, could sell into China and sound a little tone deaf, not get the very nuanced language or images or relationship tying themselves to one company or influencer or another. They could do that and be kind of forgiven because the attitude in China at the time 10 years ago was they're a foreign company. The fact that they're a foreign company is all we need to know. It's, it's foreign product. It means it's higher quality. It means it's aspirational. So we want to buy it. Five years ago, that started to change and expectations on foreign brands became higher. You need to understand us. You need to understand our market, us as a consumer. And I think that that is much more true now than it ever has been. Home to over 4 billion people, the Asia-Pacific region boasts one of the most powerful consumer markets on the planet. Not only is it home to half the world's under 30 population, but it's also home to more than half the world's internet users. It's a market no globally-minded brand should ignore, but entering markets like China is no easy task. Just ask the likes of Microsoft, Google, Uber, and Facebook. Times are changing, and with the right partners, doors are slowly opening as more and more companies find success expanding into the markets of the Middle Kingdom. I myself spent eight years in China, mostly as a venture capitalist, helping early-stage tech companies enter the Asia-Pacific market successfully. This show is dedicated to uncovering and examining successful China entry and growth strategies by interviewing the people behind those success stories. My name is Todd Embley, and welcome to The Negotiation, brought to you by WPIC Marketing and Technologies. Kimberly, welcome back to the show. Thank you. It's great to be back. It's been a while. Last episode, we've had you on before. We'll get into that. It was a fantastic episode, but the world is ever-changing, as we know it. It is changing so fast, and even though it's been about 17, 18 months since we had you on before, a lot has changed, so we have a lot to talk about and a lot to cover. But let's start by taking a quick look back at the topics that we did cover in the previous episode in September of 2020. And I want to know, looking at negotiating, building relationships, managing suppliers, written procedures, universes, policy documents, things like that. Could you tell me a little bit about what has been happening with regards to those topical areas over the last 17, 18 months? Sure. Um, I think actually, obviously, all of us have lived through this, right? So COVID went on for much longer than anybody anticipated at the beginning of, of 2020. You know, nobody expected it to go through, you know, to go keep going and keep going. The gift that keeps on giving, right? Um, and so companies that thought that they could triage their supply chain problems 
and they were going to, you know, it was going to be six months of, of hiccups and then they would get back to normal. That obviously hasn't been the case, right? Um, and so more and more companies are realizing that there's a new normal. I was on a panel recently for a national international trade organization called NASBITE and with four or five other uh, supply chain logistics people. And they were saying, you know, this it's we're not going to go back to that. Normal. This is a new normal and it's going to we're going to stay in this new normal. It may evolve, but we're, we're never going to see where we were again. Um, and I think that's very true. And part of that is. Uh, the travel piece. I don't think we're going to get back to what I call on-demand travel uh, anytime soon for this year, maybe even next year. And and then who knows? To me, on-demand travel is I want to go to Paris tomorrow. There are tickets available. There are hotels available. I can get on a plane and go. Um, I don't have to think about what testing do I need? What testing do they require? you know, what restrictions are in place around COVID. I just get on the plane to go. And the same thing with planning six months out. I can plan six months out to go to Paris and I can go to Paris in six months and I don't have to think about, well, if I, if I pay for this trip and I plan it, is there going to be another wave in six months? And, you know, am I going to be able to get into the country in six months or am I going to be able to get back into the U.S. six months from now? So on-demand travel has just disappeared. Um, and that's a huge change for, for many people, especially people that live like my life, but, and I don't think we're getting back to that in 2022 and, and I don't think it's going to be normal in 23. So we're looking at 24, um, before it could even be back. And I don't know if it will. Right. So, and then you've got all the logistics issues and, and factory labor shortages and raw material shortages. And there's just so many different pieces of everything that's gone wrong at the same time that if you, if you suddenly disrupt, I've, I've likened it to a building. So if I, if I take the first floor of the building, a two-story building, and I remove some of the joists that are supporting the second floor, and then I remove a few windows and I move them around and I take the flooring off and I, you know, make a few other changes. It's, it's when I go to put those joists back or when I go to put the windows back, the window opening isn't the way it was when I took the window out because all these other things have happened and the, it's sagging now. You know, and the joists don't, even though I put the joists back in place and they hold the second floor up again, when the second floor wasn't being supported, there were problems that the plumbing might have come undone or something. So when you have so many things going wrong like this, you can't just slot them back in place and the system goes back to running the way it used to. So I think that's, you know, it, that's a very dramatic change from where we were the last time. Um, that we talked, that we now recognize, obviously, we've lived through the fact that this is much longer duration than we expected it to be, that it's going to continue to affect us for the next year, um, and that we're, we're going to have to figure out new ways of doing business because of that. We're not going back to the old normal. So that's huge, right? That's huge. Talk to me a little bit about what you've been up to since we last spoke over the last 17, 18 months. I'd like to know what your activities have been, how it relates to China, how the impact of, as you said, the ongoing COVID may have impacted what you do or changed what you do and how things have been evolving in your line of work. 
Yeah, it's, you know, it's, it's interesting because I think many of us, um, whether you have, you know, have a, a factory or a distribution company or a consulting company, you know, are you, are your products still relevant? Um, can you get materials or your services relevant? What I found um, the, you know, so 17 months ago would put us basically like the fall of 20, I believe. So, um, you know, at that time I was getting calls from companies saying, you know, some of them normal, regular business. We've got a factory in China, a company in China, we're selling it to another company um, just because it's never, it's been good, but it hasn't been fabulous. And our, our uh, owners are getting older and we'd like to simplify the business. We're looking at potentially selling it or whatever. So I spent about a year helping them wind down that business, satisfy their customers. The buyer wanted the corporation and, and some of its assets, but they didn't want the manufacturing part of it. Um, so that was, you know, like a year long project. I had other clients that were wanting to set up new companies in China. Um, I've been doing a lot of work for New Zealand. Uh, New Zealand government pays me to help New Zealand companies do business internationally in the U.S. and then manufacturing in North America and China. Um, so I've gotten a lot of calls on that um, where different small companies expanding internationally, what can they do? Um, and then other clients with uh, existing businesses in China that are going through some kind of transition. How do we manage the transition? Companies looking for new suppliers, um, a lot of supply chain issues, you know, companies with suppliers that have had great relationships for 10 years and all of a sudden they, you know, they're not getting answers on emails and they don't know if their order is going to be shipped or not, what the heck's happening. Um, so there, it's been a balance of kind of business as normal for the first 12 months of that. And because again, people were anticipating we were going to get back to normal. And then also what I call, oh shit projects of, you know, this suddenly happened and we really need inventory. You know, we can't get inventory, really need inventory, don't have anywhere else to get it from. Why isn't this supplier answering us? Um, so it's been busy. It's been very, very busy, which is great, right? For, for me, um, usually it means someone else is having a problem, but it's been great for me. Um, another thing I've seen uh, is, is too many companies, and this has come up in the last two years with probably four or five clients, too many companies find a manufacturer and OEM in China to make a product for them. And then they iterate the design, redesign that product and they, you know, add value to it and give kind of their feedback as a customer. We want to improve this and the interface needs to be better and we need to do this and we need to do that. Um, and then in the end, the American side says, wow, we own that, that, up, that upgrades, right? We own the improved software or we own the improved designer and, and they never, they can't own it. They don't really have a right to it because they they haven't modified the software themselves and they haven't made the change and they don't even half the time understand how it was changed. My my most recent conversation on this was a company saying the software that we help them redevelop, we own it. I said exactly what language was it written in? We don't know. And I'm like, if you don't know what language it was written in, you didn't do any of the programming, how exactly do you own it? You know? So um, I think that that we've been insulated uh, between us and wherever, whoever we are and our partners internationally, whether that's our customers or distributors or manufacturers and being insulated from them 
isn't, isn't allowing us to come up against some of these hard truths as fast as we might have, you know, a few years ago where we might've been back and forth and maybe we would have realized this better, that this was a bad decision. And now because there's not as much interaction and you're not traveling as far, or maybe it takes longer to develop these changes, you're not recognizing that these are bad decisions. Um, Cause it seems like I'm seeing a lot of bad decisions. Um, so I'd say that is, you know, kind of where I've seen things go in the last year and a half. I wanted to talk about something that has been discussed ad nauseum, at least from what I've seen over the last 18 months, that global supply chain and how it's been basically turned on its head since COVID started. Now, as someone who has a pretty unique knowledge and, and great insights into the global supply chain vertical, can you give us a bit of an overview of what exactly has been happening and what is going on in China in terms of the supply chain? I know that people are talking about how expensive they can't get containers. It costs $26,000 to just get a container because they're all, you know, sitting on the shores of China. Can you talk to us a little bit about what's been going on and why? Yeah, it's it's very complicated. And like you said, I think there's a lot of a lot of news about it. But fundamentally, like my house analogy, when you when you disrupt one piece, so you have China shut down because of COVID, the factory shut down and the port shut down. And then when they start to open back up again, now the U.S. has COVID in Europe and they start shutting down. So first, the manufacturing is not happening. And then when the manufacturing, so the people with demand are, are looking for, for products and for inventory and for delivery and they're not getting it. So then when the factories open back up again, they go hardcore and start, you know, just burning the midnight oil and manufacturing and making a bunch of product and trying to ship it. Now, all of a sudden, the customers shut down and the customers saying, sorry, too late, don't want it, can't handle it. Turn it, turn it around. And so now the in-between of that, the ships and the warehouses and the you know customs officials, they didn't have, they had a lot of excess capacity in the first step because nobody was shipping anything. And then also they, they closed, you know, shut down a lot of the, the routes and um, canceled a lot of flights. And, and then all of a sudden they start ramping that up again because the factories are ramping. And then all of a sudden the demand side says, no, we don't need it. So there's too much stuff sitting in the in inventory and on the Chinese side or the U S side that they can't pick up and get out. They don't want anymore because they don't have customers anymore. And then they, they start to, you know, the demand side, U S Europe side starts to pick back up again. And then there's another wave in China and then they have more problems. And, and so when this happens, there's all these moving parts. There's the, sh- the freight companies and do they, ha- where, do, where are the ships when they stop running them? And, you know, maybe they take some old ships out of, out of commission and try, you know, think they're going to build new ships or, you know, the, they've canceled all the flights because people aren't flying back and forth. And those flights also carry cargo. So now what are we going to do without that cargo airspace? You have employees that can't go from A to B in the U.S. They can't they they can't go visit a factory because there's you know travel restrictions their company has, so they can't go visit a factory or do a quality control inspection. You know, same thing in China. So once they they so it's like turning off a spigot. You turn it back on. It can sometimes sputter. You know, and air comes out, water blasts out, and but then just as you get it running, you turn it back off again you know, or you plug something in it. And so it's really just been the perfect storm of a million things that have gone wrong. I don't think we're going back to, to where we were. There have also been some very fundamental shifts 
of companies, large companies buying their own their own ships, you know, Walmart, um, or large companies buying their own freighters ships and bulking up their staff on logistics and not outsourcing as much of it. Um, so that's that's dramatically shifted. I don't see them firing all those people and selling the ships when things go back to normal, you know, quote unquote, new normal. Um, I also think that from a manufacturing standpoint, companies had really been, you know, 20 years of just in time inventory and lean supply chains and lean logistics where you had very little safety stock and, you know, very little wiggle room that if there was a delay for two weeks, you could be out of inventory, right? Because you they had felt over 20, 30 years that they'd eliminated all those risks and they could only hold you know, a week's worth of inventory because they had constant deliveries of product. Well, that blew, you know, COVID blew all that out of the, out of the water. So now companies are going back to, we need more inventory and, you know, we, we need to have extra stock and we need to have multiple suppliers and we can't just have suppliers in India or in China. We need one in Mexico or Europe because if, when India shut down, Everybody went back to the Chinese factories. And when China was shut down, they went to the Indian factories. And, you know, so I think we're going to see more regionalization um, where companies have a uh, manufacturing in Asia. They have one in India. They have one in Europe. They have one in North America or suppliers, you know, and the same with customers to feel your feed your customers. Maybe you can't ship them from the U.S. anymore, from New Zealand or from Australia. You have to ship them from you know, from uh, the country that they're in. So you need to have, uh, maybe you are manufacturing yourself now in in Australia, but you have a huge customer base in the United States. Maybe now we need to manufacture in the US. I've got a few clients, you know, from the New Zealand, Australia region looking for manufacturing in the US because of this, you know, and companies that were manufacturing in China to bring to the U.S. are looking here or they're looking in, in China to sell in China and increase that market for themselves. So I think we're going to more regionally managed. Um, I also think it affects people because people can't move back and forth as easily. So let's say you were living in China and you, you know, you were running your business there or running the company's, you know, operations there. And you would go back to the home office two or three times a year and you go to Europe and well, now living in China means staying in China, you know, and not flying back and forth and not being able to see family or go to headquarters. And so some people are, are going to be okay with that. And some people aren't. Um, so it's really, it's, you know, it's, it's a big, it's a big shift in how people live their lives in how businesses service their customers in you know how consolidated their manufacturing warehousing and inventory is and i think these shifts are going to go on um i don't think it's a two year thing and we're going to go back to lean manufacturing and you know lean supply chain logistics and just in time you know inventories i don't see those becoming viable anytime soon what do you think the resolution might i mean that's assuming there is a resolution so do you see some type of moving forward resolution on the horizon? And if you do, what does that look like? Well, I think we're still in for disruption in 23, you know, and who knows, right? If, if it could go on past 23 into 24 and beyond. But I, I do think we're definitely in regionalization where if you're based in Asia, you're based in Asia. 
you're not based in Asia and flying back and forth to Europe or the US. If you're based in the US, you're based in the US and you're not moving around. So um, companies that are committed to their international business plan and they have customers or suppliers all over the world, you're going to need people in those countries because it can't be you. Um, I really also, I think part of that is the political aspect of the amount of criticism and anger that's flying around between China and the U.S. and, you know, U.S. and Russia and Ukraine and Russia and just all of this. So I think we've seen where a lot, five years ago, a lot of countries were becoming more nationalist and not just authoritarian countries. Democracies were becoming more nationalist and electing more nationalistic, you know, hierarchical types of leaders. And because they wanted certainty and they wanted, you know, very clear direction. And we're, that's only getting more pronounced than it was before. You know, a lot of your work is focused on, on managing suppliers. And this topic of discussion is really around almost the remote work, future work type of discussion, because like yourself and, and like hundreds of thousands of others of expats and those that work there, they haven't been able to be in China, boots on the ground and be meeting face to face with suppliers or manufacturers or distributors for up to two years now. So can you help us understand how you and by extension, potentially all others that are doing a lot of business in China. How have you been able to maintain those relationships, perhaps enhance them or what has potentially been challenging because of COVID? Do you have a couple of tactics that you use that you might recommend or even a couple of companies you could call out who are doing just a really good job of maintaining or building or growing those relationships and how they're doing it? Basically, it's it's more more important the relationship becomes even more important because you you have to have trust on both sides you have to trust that they've got your best interest in heart that they're you know acting as a good distributor that they're you know acting as a good supplier on your behalf and and they have to trust that you're a good supplier or customer, right? Trust is is critical. Um, and it's harder to do when you can't be face-to-face. So being very mindful of your communication, of how you write your emails, of being more um, relationship language in your emails, not being just, okay, what's the status of the order? Can you give me information? Thank you very much. You know, but hey, how are you doing? Um, I, you guys just had Chinese New Year. I hope you had a great time with your family. How is everything working out? You know, being more personal, making sure you're feeding the personal part of the relationship is really important. Um, you know, there there are other other um, think techniques, I guess you could say, that you need to be very mindful of outside of that. One is um, you. It's always good to have alternative channels of information. So, you know, you normally are talking to the general manager of your of your distribution office in China, but it's good to have a few people in the U.S. who have relationships with some of the other staff over there, too. You know, your HR person, your finance person, um, because that person might tell you the HR person might reach out, you know, on the side and say, hey, the general manager is kind of going going crazy here. He's, he's spending money like a fool and he's committing the company to a bunch of things that are distracting us from our purpose and 
don't tell him I said so, but you know, we're having a lot of problems here with this guy. If you don't back to relationship, if you don't have a good relationship, those alternative channels of information are not going to be productive for you. So, you know, it's really important to have those right now when you're not able to just jump on a plane and go see, you know, how things are going with your customers or your suppliers or whoever. Secondly, I'm, you know, I talked a lot the first um, podcast about supply chain management systems and documents and procedures. And, you know, people rightfully so don't want a lot of procedures and don't want a lot of documents. And I understand that. But I look at at documents as a way to um, to encourage and put um, gates around behavior. So when I can't be, you know, visiting my team over there and, and working with them and finding out what they're doing, you know, and, and how things are going and is it working or not working? Are there issues within the team between managers? You know, what's happening? Having documents that re- that require them to report metrics on a certain topic or to fill out certain information every week and send it to me or, you know, to come up with an idea a week on something. Those kind of documents encourage the behaviors that you want to see. Um, so leaving it to, I have a client right now that he's, they transitioned from an old general manager to a new general manager and the new GM in the plant has worked for the company for a long time. So they do know the guy, but I had said in advance of this transfer of power that they needed to put much better systems in place to manage this person's behavior, because otherwise it was likely they were going to come in and be a new emperor to replace the old emperor. Well, of course, the Americans ran out of time and didn't have time to work on this, work on that through the fall with all the, you know, shipping and logistics and all these other issues. So here we get to the beginning of the year and this new guy is responsible and we're hearing through our indirect channels of communication. Thank you very much that he is being very dictatorial and that he's told everybody he's promoted someone in the organization that that he's not allowed to promote, that um, he's telling them to divert their attention to one area of the business that will help him, you know, build the organization structure he wants, not and not focused on what the company wants them to be focused on. So, um, but the American keeps saying, well, I t- every week I talk to him and I tell him not to do that. <laughs> okay. But we're six weeks or more into the new year. And every week you tell him not to do that. And guess what? He's still doing it. And as a matter of fact, he's getting worse. So what else are we going to do besides you telling him? So, you know, if having these procedures or, or restrictions or gates on things that don't allow him to do things we don't want him to do are a big part of, of focusing his attention. And then also, you know, for the American, not sugarcoating what they're seeing. You know, the guy's got other plants here in the United States and North America that he's managing, you know, and he doesn't want new problems in the China plant because he doesn't have time to deal with that. He has other things he's got to deal with here. So he's kind of not wanting to acknowledge that it's as bad as it is because then he'd have to deal with it, you know, and he just doesn't have the time to deal with it. So you have to be really careful that you don't start falling into this, you know, I can't go over, I can't fix it. I can't hire somebody else. I can't, you know, find 10 new customers if this sales guy doesn't work out for us. So I'm just going to double down on what I've been doing and hope that, 
you know, it starts working because it hasn't worked up to now. It's not going to work. You know, um, you've got to, you've got to put the time in and you've got to challenge the methods that you're using and look for alternative methods. Um, so I would say those are, you know, those are the things. The relationship is, is of even more importance than it was before. Having alternative channel, you know, information, using documents to streamline, encourage behavior, and then being aware yourself that you're, you might be, you know, putting a bag over your head because you're thinking, crap, I just can't handle this. You know, it's, it's too much. I don't have the time. I don't understand it. You, that's not going to help, right? You've got to, you've got to rip that bag off and, and look at the cold, hard truth that you're getting and deal with it. How do you think overall the business landscape has changed you know, specifically to Asia over the past couple of years? And what specifically do you think is going to go back to normal post COVID? And what do you think is going to stay exactly the way that it is? or even regress? Yeah, I don't think there's much that's going to go back to normal. Um, honestly, I, I don't think the way people work in, in their jobs is going to go back to the way it was um, for many reasons, personal satisfaction and travel and, you know, a lot of reasons. I don't think we're going to go back to, you know, having freight forwarders and shippers and freight companies and everybody being separate and, you know, companies relying on these intermediary freight forwarders, we've eliminated a lot of those. I think that'll continue. I think the regionalization is here to stay for a while. You know, having suppliers in different regions or manage, distribution management in different regions, not relying on one person to manage all of it. I think that's going to stay. Um, you know, I think the, the tension, the geopolitical tension between a lot of countries, um, and the direction that many, many countries are going in terms of becoming more, um, you know, more hierarchical government styles. Um, I think that's going to continue developing. I'm avoiding a word that begins with A. <laughs> I don't want to, I don't want to go there, but um, so I, I really don't see in hardly any any areas of international trade and business and, and international labor I don't see us going back to where we were. I just don't. I would tend to agree. Uh, I think that was a leading question for the jury for sure. Do you think the B2B buying process in China uh, has changed at all over the past two years? And how do you see that evolving post-COVID? Yeah, I think um, companies have either gone, they've gone to one extreme or the other. Either we're going to check absolutely everything. And we're going to have more inspections and more management, you know, and more control and more oversight, or we're just going to put that bag over our heads and, you know, we can't possibly manage it. And so we're just not even going to try. Right. So I think that is, is where I see, you know, I see companies diverging either one direction or the other. Um, again, I mentioned, you know, that I think a lot of Chinese companies are buying into this um, defensiveness of we, you know, the, the outside ex our export clients don't respect us, don't respect our business, are trying to contain China. They don't think we're capable. So we're going to double down and do it ourselves. We're going to create our own brands. We're going to create our own business. Um, we're going to manage distribution worldwide. We're not going to go through you know, these other companies that were doing it for us. Um, and they're still in their infancy in that many of these Chinese brands, companies, they're still in their infancy of that, but they're, and so they're not very good at it, to be honest, many of them. 
but that doesn't mean that they're not going to throw resources at it and keep working at it until they are good at it. So I think we're going to be living in a very different, um, very different world in five or 10 years than we have been, including, you know, client supplier relationships, where things are manufactured. You know, um, China's not going to be the world's factory anymore. It's going to be its own developed, you know, high tech business market. Um, selling to China, you know, distributing in China, that makes it even more important to be tied in to what's going on in country, to understand, you know, wh- what what's the best platform to sell your product on, um, you know, who is your customer, how do you appeal to that customer? Um, it's going to be even more important. Um, so it's, you know, fascinating time. Yeah, to say the least. Uh, and it has been and it probably will continue to be. And everybody's going to have to try to keep up. If you're advising an international brand who wants to enter China right now in this very unique time of life with regards to the U.S.-China relationships, what advice are you giving them? And if you were able to look back and remember the advice you were giving 18 months ago, how has that advice changed? Yeah, it's even more important to, um, so foreign companies, let's say 10 years ago, could sell into China and sound a little tone deaf, you know, not get the very um, nuanced uh, language or images or relationship, you know, tying themselves to one company or, or influence or another, they could do that and be kind of forgiven because the attitude in China at the time, 10 years ago, was they're a foreign company. The fact that they're a foreign company is all we need to know. It's it's foreign product. It means it's higher quality. You know, it means it's aspirational. So we want to buy it, even if they don't have the world's best marketing program, distribution program. Five years ago, that started to change um, and expectations on foreign brands became higher. You know, you need to understand us. You need to understand our market, our us as a consumer. Um, and I think that that is even, even much more true now than it, than it ever has been. Um, you really need to understand your, your market in China, how your products are used, um, it's critical. We had a client uh, beginning of this year over winter holidays that was selling a product. They had been selling a product in China B2B and they wanted to start selling it B2C. And I told the guy from the very first phone call, I don't think you have a tremendous opportunity for your product in China. The Chinese don't, the, the benefits of your product don't matter to them right now. They're just not important to them. And, and his attitude was, but they should be, right? They should be. They should care about the what our, our material does differently than what other companies' material does, a different type of material does than ours. And I'm like, well, maybe, maybe they should, but they don't, right? So, so we did some um, market studies for them, you know, interviews with potential customers in the market, companies that would distribute their materials. And those companies came back and said, you know, when we asked them very finite questions, like, let's say we were saying to them, let's say we're talking about cheese, right? We want to sell you cheese and into China. And the Chinese have never really eaten cheese. It's not something that they, that's in their diet in any way. And so now they're starting to sell cheese into China. And this company wanted to ask the average, you know, small deli in China, do you want, you know, so if, if you go to that small deli and you said to them, is it blue cheese or cheddar cheese? 
it's unlikely most of them would know the difference. Cheese is cheese, right? There may be 10% 10 of the population in China who would say, okay, I know cheddar is on burgers and blue cheese I like on my salads, right? Of Western food. But these guys wanted to find out, do you like Gruyere cheese that's made from the Swiss Gruyere region? Or do you like Gruyere cheese that comes from other parts of France? And I, and I was trying to say to them, that's, that's just so narrow. And you're talking to people for whom cheese is cheese, you know, and you're trying to get them to understand that you're the Swiss Gruyere, not the, from the authoric region that's allowed to call it Gruyere, not from, you know, French producers that are making Gruyere cheese. They're not even close to having that distinction right now. And, and so it's pointless to try to have that conversation with them. And, and they just couldn't accept it. They couldn't accept that, that they, that we, that we must not be ask, asking the right questions. Why couldn't these people tell us if it was Swiss Gruyere or French Gruyere? Because they don't, it's just cheese, you know, they can't tell you because it's just cheese. So, and I couldn't, couldn't get them to understand. So I think that foreign brands going into China, you really have to challenge your own bias and expectations um, and how you judge and value what the customer, whether it's a business or a consumer, what they would think about your product, you know, or your business, because they may have a completely different perspective and use of it, different value system around what makes it work. Um, and I think, again, not being able to travel for a couple of years, um, we can't take those clients to China and walk, I've done this with clients, take them to China, walk them through the, the plant where they might sell their equipment and show them how the Chinese are using equipment like that right now. And then as much as I could have written a report and, and recorded videos and told them everything until they're there looking at it, they don't really understand crap. They don't use this, right? And they're not going to use it. They don't see the value of it. So it's really important to, to keep an open mind, to try to remove your um, expectations and perspective and really listen to what the, the, your Chinese customers and your advisors are telling you about your product and your business. Last question for you, and then we'll get you out of here. In our last episode, you mentioned that the U.S. buying process, not very relationship-driven, partially because of the lawyer lobby, okay? And there's this worry about favoritism and the need to procure lowest prices and, I don't know, protect against monopolies and, and, and uh, you know, price uh, fixing and things like that, right? So has China moved in the direction of operating in this fashion at all, or is it still just relationship guanxi driven entirely well i think i don't i don't think they have moved a lot i think part of it is the you know in the early 2000s when private companies in china were really growing the people running those companies had grown up in you know come of age professionally in state-owned business models so they really weren't thinking like an entrepreneur experienced entrepreneur because they hadn't been one in the early 2000s. Um, I think 20 years later, you have people that have 10, 15, 20 years experience under their belt, either working for a private company or owning a private company. So they have a much better um, understanding of return on investment and, you know, value purchasing and pricing for, you know, more than just the lowest price. So I think there's an organic learning curve 
that had to happen. And that learning curve has happened. Um, so I think more Chinese business people are buying from for more metrics reasons than they did 20 years ago. Um, but still having said that, China as a society culturally has always been um, it's very important relationships. Risk is relationships um, demonstrate risk. You know, if you do something wrong and you have a bad reputation and I'm doing business with you, I have a bad reputation, right? The U.S. was like this until probably the 50s or 60s. And we started to evolve out of it, partly because people were moving all over the country and not staying in their same hometowns. They were changing jobs more frequently. And that's starting to happen in China. But I think it's it. The relationship side of business was is just much more um, important in China than it was in the U.S. to start with. So I think we're 10, 20 years away from having a more hands-off metrics-driven business model in China. We're, we're moving in that direction a little bit. I don't think you're going to see the lawyer liability um, drivers that we have here in the United States in China maybe ever, certainly not the next 20 or 30 years. Um, I don't see that happening as a driver for this. But I do think entrepreneurial business ownership and people having more private business experience has created a balance between metrics decision-making and relationship decision-making. And the U.S. is going back to more relationship decision-making because you need to trust your suppliers. Like people have said to me, they, they try to order during all the shortages in COVID, you know, they've tried to order from different companies, but if they can't get materials, but if they call a guy they went to high school with or college with that person can help them, you know, get, get an order pushed through. So I think we've become more focused on lifestyle and relationship and our overall, the humanity of, of people in business because of COVID in the U.S. So I think maybe we're moving a little closer together on both sides. Kimberly Kirkendall, thank you so much for coming back on the show once again. It was amazing as always, and I'm sure we're going to have you back for a third very soon. (laughs) Well, thank you. I always enjoy it. Thank you very much. Growing a company is hard. Doing it in a foreign market? Exponentially so. The best piece of advice I can give you is not to do it alone. When you start looking across the pond for further expansion possibilities, and I sincerely hope that you do, make sure you choose the right partners to do it with. My good friends at WPIC Marketing and Technologies have almost 20 years of experience helping brands just like yours enter China. I hope you enjoyed this episode of The Negotiation. And if you're interested in being a guest or want to connect with me or any of our team, please reach out to us at podcast at WPIC.co. And be sure to rate, comment, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Zai Jing.